for more than a year, Labour has been polling ahead of the Conservative government, and significantly at that. Polling averages are giving Labour up to a 20-point lead, and some individual pollsters have seen leads of close to 30 points. Keir Starmer has had a lot to be happy about, and many in the party are looking forward with glee at the future election within the next two years. But if we've learnt anything from politics in 2022, it's that a lot can change in that time. Welcome to the iPodcast. In this week's episode, we'll be having a look at Labour's chances of turning their polling lead into a landslide election victory. Later, we'll be taking a trip into the establishments where the cost of living crisis is a million miles away, Britain's booming Michelin star restaurants. But first, we are joined by our political reporter Chloe Chaplin and policy editor Jane Merrick to take a look at what Labour faces in the coming years. Chloe, first of all, can you give us a bit of an overview about the journey that Labour's polling has taken over the past couple of years? Yeah, sure. So I'm sure everybody would have seen at the moment Labour are quite significantly ahead, roughly about 20 points, I think the latest polling is showing. Go back to 2019 and it was a very different story. The Conservatives had a considerable poll lead, unsurprisingly, given the election result. And they maintained that for, for much of the first kind of year and a half of Johnson's premiership. Last year, when things started to go wrong for Johnson, that poll lead narrowed considerably. And, you know, fast forward to Liz Truss's premiership, the mini budget that we've heard a lot about. And uh, Labour took the lead. I could be wrong, but I think at the time it was considered that the huge polling lead that Labour, Labour had at that time wouldn't last. And it hasn't lasted to the same extent. It's dropped a few points since then, but now it's levelled out and it does seem that, that it could be here to stay for the foreseeable. Obviously, I'm not going to make predictions about polling for a year's time, but uh, they seem to have quite a comfortable poll lead at the moment. Jane, do we have any idea about where and from whom this support is coming? Yeah, we do. I mean, obviously, political parties will always have their base for Labour. It's several million voters, they'll always support Labour come what may. So they did in 2019, even though Jeremy Corbyn's vote collapsed and there were sort of the worst performance for several decades. But there will always be Labour voters who will just vote no matter what. The marginal seats that are so interesting on elections were the sort of including that famous red wall that Jeremy Corbyn lost in 2019. We're starting to see those swing back to Keir Starmer. And the issues that people are interested in and really keen in those seats are things like the cost of living, economic credibility, the NHS, the real bread and butter issues. But I think if he's looking also at an even bigger victory, a sort of more than those red wall seats, something that we saw under maybe Tony Blair in 97, 2001, then that's really eating into, I wouldn't say conservative heartlands, but sort of seats that have basically been conservative since 2010. I mean, looking at kind of the East Midlands, home counties around London, Portsmouth, for example. It's really fascinating that if Keir Starmer can win those seats over. But the question is whether those voters are really convinced about Labour's position on things like Brexit and immigration. On those particular issues, it's still to play for. I think it's fair to say that Labour has been quite divided at times. We obviously lurched from Jeremy Corbyn to Keir Starmer, who had very different ideas for leadership. 
How much has the polling success of late silenced Starmer's internal critics? It has had a significant impact in that there are many within the party who can see the value of being united after, as you say, several years of division. I think those who are critical of Starmer would point out that that's potentially related to his leadership style. Some see it as a good leadership style, some see it as being slightly too controlling from the top down. However, I do think it's important to consider the context of those critics. So if you look, for example, at some of those on the left of the party who are quite outspoken in their criticism of Starmer's policy and leadership style, you know, it's quite easy to consider those in a a black and white way and think, well, why are they criticising their own party when the party looks for the first time in many years to be on the brink of success? But actually, it's not just about bringing down Starmer. It's about moving the dial of the debate of what Labour policy is slightly to the left in exactly the same way that those on the right of the Conservative Party will potentially criticise policy that they see as being too too centrist right. Because everybody has their own agenda and they want to make sure that Labour is representing all parts of the left of the party. So I don't think we can expect those critics, if you like, to be completely silenced. But I think the fact that the majority of people within the parliamentary party are fairly unanimous in their support of the policy agenda, I think it does say a lot about Starmer's grip on his party at the moment. Jane, our political editor, Hugo Jai, wrote back in December that the party had raised more money from donors than the Tories for the first time in six years. Why do you think this is? Yeah, I mean, the people with money that want to invest or donate to political parties, they can always see the way the political wind is blowing and expect Labour to be the likely next government, even if it's not a landslide. I mean, why do donors donate to political parties? It's not to overtly buy influence, because that's obviously against the rules, but they want to see the policy, they like the policies that a party has, they want to see them enacted. And so there is a sort of a sense, I think, among people who do have the money to spend that they want to see a Labour government and they will spend money on that. I mean, obviously, Labour have had financial support from the unions for a long time, but we're starting to see business people donating. I think we also saw that at Labour conference this last year. There were much more people in suits. It was more sort of a dynamic expectation that Labour were the next government and much looking at them much more seriously. And I think that was interesting quote that Keir Starmer said in his New Year speech that he said that people are starting to look at us in a different way and I think that's not just voters but it's people who want to see Labour in government and brutally we don't have political funding for parties we don't have state funding for parties political parties do need to raise funds to get them into power they need leaflets they need technology that doesn't come for free so they do need to raise money and it's really interesting that that shift has happened because it clearly where the money is going, it's clearly where the votes are going and probably where the next election is going. You mentioned there the kind of growing links between Labour and the business world. And one person who's been credited with a lot of this is Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, who's a former Bank of England official. Is this an attempt by Keir Starmer to position Labour as the party of fiscal responsibility and business sense? And is this a strategy for the next election? I think that's right. She is becoming much more prominent. We're seeing her a lot more as Keir Starmer's number two, more so than Angela Rayner. Her background is in the finances. She's in the city. She was as a former Bank of England official, as you said. She's actually been around for 13 years in Westminster. She was first elected in 2010, served on the front bench for most of that time. 
and has built up quite a sort of a strong following among Labour MPs. She's very well respected. She's seen as credible on economic matters. I think she's also seen as someone who'd be very careful with the nation's money. She's got strong discipline with spending promises, has made it clear to shadow ministers that they can't just announce policies on the hoof that have not been fully costed. So I think that's a definite strategy. You know, Labour to get back in power, they lost power on the back of the financial crisis of 2008. They lost power in 2010, obviously. And they do need to have that economic credibility to get back into power. And I think they are getting that. You see that in the polls, that they are seen as strong on the economy, particularly when the Tories have lost that ground because of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. So it's becoming a stronger strategy, a stronger string to their bow, essentially. But it's whether there are enough voters who will see Labour as someone who would, again, be able to you know, keep inflation down, be sensible with the nation's finances. And I think there may still be doubts about that among some voters. I just wanted to add a little bit to what Jane was saying. I think it's a really interesting topic, the kind of labour and business strategy, because there's no doubt that the trust leadership and the mini budget and the cost of living crisis pre-existing that and everything has really sharpened the public's mind when it comes to what good economic management actually looks like and what the day-to-day impact of poor economic management could be. You know, we're all feeling that now, and it's it's very real. It's not this kind of idea of what could happen in the future. But I agree, it's not a lucky accident for Labour that the polling is showing that Labour is considered more trusted with the economy. When you look through policy announcement after policy announcement over the last month's year, in every one, there's mention of the importance of business that runs through pretty much all of their policies, whether whether it comes to, you know, industrial strategy, the green policies, even some of the NHS plans, albeit the short term NHS backlog plans, you know, you can see a thread running through all of what will be Labour's future manifesto. So I do think it's a very considered strategy that the party has been pushing. So they're going for the party of economic growth and business sense and stability, Chloe. What other strategies are Labour trying to undertake in order to pivot voters who might be on the fence? So going back several months now, I mean, I think this must be a year ago, maybe. I remember speaking to a party insider who said they were focusing on areas where Labour has been considered weak. So economy, you know, we've discussed that. Other areas, crime and immigration. Traditionally, voters don't consider the Labour Party to be the party of tackling crime or the party of tackling immigration. That, that's kind of been the Conservatives' territory. However, the feeling among the general public is that the Conservative government have not done a very good job on these areas. So it's sort of left a bit of a vacuum where if Labour play their cards right, they might be able to step in and say, we do have a plan for this. We do have a solution for this. I think that's starting to show in the polling of who do you trust better to manage crime, who do you trust better to manage immigration. However, I'm not really sure whether that's just because the Conservatives are considered to be doing such a terrible job of it or whether it's because Labour has put forward a particularly good strategy. That could be an area of weakness as we start to get more crystal clear policy. I also think Brexit is and will be, as Jane said earlier, a very difficult issue going into the next election for Labour because there is work that needs to be done on the current trade agreements and the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's not easy and Labour's position on this has been kind of extremely precarious, to put it kindly, I think. That could be a real problem area if they don't get their message really clear on that. 
We know that in the past, Labour has at times been criticised for potentially being a bit light on policy, you know, on meaningful offerings to voters as an alternative. What are they telling you, Chloe, about how they plan to set out their vision and, and put this in action if they do win the next election? I think the criticism of, of Labour being slightly vague is fair. I also would argue that it's probably quite reasonable for an opposition party two years out of an election to be keeping their cards close to their chest on the details of their policy. Not least because, as we've seen in the last year, we could be looking at a completely different economic outlook or global situation by the time of the next election. I would expect this year to start seeing a bit more granular detail. We've seen that a little bit with some of the NHS policies that have been announced over the last few weeks. We've seen it also with unemployment and kind of the jobs market. But I, I think this is the year now where Labour should be setting out a little bit more of what their manifesto could look like. And the conversations I've had with people indicate to me that that's very much their plan. Andrew Fisher, who was the director of policy for Labour under Jeremy Corbyn, pointed out in an opinion piece for I that when it comes to Starmer versus Rishi Sunak, the personal polling is actually neck and neck. So despite there being an overwhelming support for Labour as a party, it's much closer for the individuals. Jane, what's your thought on why this might be? Yeah, this is actually a kind of a quirk that has happened in recent years, that a Tory leader personally will outpoll his or her party and that a Labour leader is personally doing worse than his and it has only been his party in the polls. It's an interesting thing that voters traditionally like Labour policies. They like things like the NHS and talking about things like that. But there are doubts about the leader himself. And that with the Conservatives, they tend to like the sort of the personalities of, say, Boris Johnson. In Rishi Sunak's case, he's seen as sort of a safe pair of hands after turmoil under Boris Johnson and, and Liz Truss. But the policies, because it's been a, a government that's been around for 13 years, the party's becoming more unpopular with voters there was a a bit of a sense of relief when Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister, even though it was still a Conservative Prime Minister and sort of no election had happened. Basically, Rishi Sunak is seen as essentially a technocrat and a safe pair of hands. So that's probably why he's doing better than his or her party. Andrew Fisher makes a good point. But on election day, I think people look at a party in in the round. They do obviously elect a prime minister in a a non-literal sense. They elect their local MPs, but they are looking at who the next prime minister will be. But they're also thinking about that party. They're thinking about what the policies will be. And I think it's interesting to make that point that Sudak and Starmer are still quite neck and neck. Not a single week goes by that we don't hear about one of Boris Johnson's friends suggesting that he's going to make a comeback. Jane, you've written about how the Partygate inquiry could allow Johnson to make his long-awaited comeback a reality. That might sound paradoxical. So why is that? Yeah, it, it does sound like a paradox. I mean, I think many in Westminster had believed that the Privileges Committee, which is a committee of MPs looking into whether Boris Johnson misled Parliament over Partygate, they thought that that might be the final nail in the coffin for his comeback. He obviously had to resign, not over Partygate in particular, but the kind of head of steam over general sleaze and sexual harassment and his inability to get a grip on those issues. It was seen that it would remind people of how he behaved over Partygate and it would be basically curtains for his future political career. But interestingly, as I reported today, that he's planning to use as a defence in his oral evidence to the committee that he was always going on the advice that he received from civil servants, political advisers and government lawyers 
on what was right and wrong on, under the COVID rules. And that when he told Parliament in December 2021 that no COVID rules were broken, he was essentially just going on the advice he was given. Now, in hindsight, people may be incredulous at this. Well, of course that they were parties. You know, we've, we've learned sort of lurid details about ABBA playing at full blast inside number 10. Of course these were parties. But it's interesting that the committee has asked for all the briefing papers that he received on that exact advice. And I think they're very keen to be seen not to be a sort of a kangaroo court. And basically, they want to do this as a proper job with integrity. It's being chaired by Harriet Harman. She's obviously a Labour MP, but she would want to do a sort of a job that's being seen as generally politically neutral. It's got a majority Tory committee. So not to prejudice their findings, but you could see this as a path for Johnson to escape censure if he's going to be saying, look, this was just the advice I received. Advisors advise and ministers decide, but I can only basically go on the advice. And I was told, he, he will probably say, that no rules are broken inside number 10. Does that mean he misled Parliament? Well, that will be for the committee to decide. But you can see that that could then put him up into a strong position to come back. And obviously, there are lots of variables at play. You know, will soon that continue to do badly in the polls or will the economy recover? Will the Conservatives do badly at the local elections in May? Will there be enough of an appetite among the party for Boris Johnson to come back? But that is the sort of the path that him and his allies can see. Obviously, also, it's important to say that he's got to get through his evidence to the COVID inquiry, which is later in the spring, and, and he's not expected to come out of that very well. So I think there are a lot of hurdles for Boris Johnson to get over before he can make a comeback. Well, let's talk more about the Tory side of all of this. We've spoken a lot about what Labour are doing to try and sustain or even increase their lead in the polls. But what are the Tories doing to try and chip away at it? I think they will go for Labour on where they think they're weakest. I mean, as Chloe mentioned earlier, it's things like Brexit, immigration, strikes. At the moment, the Tories are sort of issuing messages to party members saying that Labour are on the side of unions over strikes. And, that you know, people are really feeling that at the moment when the teachers have just announced that they're having walkouts next month. We've had fresh nursing strikes announced and fresh train strikes. So if, if the Conservatives can convince voters that Labour are on the side of the striking unions, then that might lose Labour some points. But if you poll where people are on the strikes, you know, generally there is a feeling that whilst people don't like being disrupted, they don't like having education and train journeys disrupted, there is still a lot of sympathy for striking public sector workers. They do feel like they deserve more pay. Obviously, the Tories have done focus groups on this and they think that they're on to a winner in terms of portraying Labour as on the side of the unions. But if you look at the polls, there is a lot of sympathy for the unions there. I think immigration, though, will be a strong suit for the Tories to play. If they can crack down on small boats issues, they can come forward with new laws, although I'm not really sure whether that's really going to do anything to solve the issue. You know, Brexit, it's a difficult issue for the Conservatives, for Rishi Sunak, because Labour, yes, are very weak, but the Conservatives potentially are also very weak on this because they haven't really delivered Brexit. It's still a mess in Northern Ireland. There are signs of a breakthrough on that. But in 2024, are people going to be thinking that Brexit has worked? I doubt that. So it's trying to define Labour over its weak points rather than have that reflected back on them. Just to add, on an operational level, I've noticed recently the Conservative Party has really ramped up its attack messages and, and emails that are arriving in my inbox immediately after a Labour politician has given a speech. You know, you'll get an email saying 
here's all the things in it that are wrong or these are the things that we don't agree with. You know, I was used to getting those from Labour every time you had a had a ministerial announcement. But I've definitely noticed that being ramped up. And this is by no means scientific. This is just me judging based on my my inbox and WhatsApp messages. When I did message someone in the party asking, you know, I've seen this, these being ramped up and I've also seen that you're hiring for a new comms person whose job it is to hit back at any Labour announcement. You know, what's what's going on? Are you guys ramping things up ready for the election? I was told that they couldn't discuss internal workings of the party, which I think in political journalism is not a denial. <laughs> I think it kind of goes to show that they're definitely not going to just take this lying down. You know, they're, they're gearing up for an electoral fight. Thank you both so much. It's always fantastic to get your insight, particularly right from the heart of Westminster. Thank you. Thank you. Reporting like this is what we do every single day at I. So if you want to commit to staying up to date in 2023 with trusted, impartial journalism, straight from our team of award-winning reporters and commentators, join us now and get unlimited access to all of our journalism, including subscriber-only newsletters from our expert columnists and daily puzzles from just £3.33 a month when you sign up for an annual subscription. Subscribe and save when you join before the 23rd of January at inews.co.uk forward slash podcast. I is for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin and news coverage without an axe to grind. Lively opinion, so you hear all sides of the argument. I for open minds. Subscribe today. In an era where shoppers are forced to scour supermarket shelves for groceries that they can afford, and the soaring price of butter means some brands now warrant a security tag, it's easy to assume that the frightening spike in the cost of living is ubiquitous. But senior reporter Serena Sandu has found that there's one area of the food industry where the economic downturn might as well not exist. Britain's fine dining restaurants are as busy as ever, despite menus that set customers back hundreds of pounds per head. So what's made them seemingly so immune to the financial pressures the rest of us are feeling? And can they possibly continue to book the trend in the long term? Serena, you've been looking into how Britain's Michelin star restaurants seem to be doing a roaring trade despite the cost of living crisis. Can you tell us a bit about what you found? Yeah, so I mean, the cost of living crisis is devastating for a lot of people. We know it's plunging more and more people into poverty. It's forcing people to the doors of food banks, of social supermarkets. You know, people are thinking, how can they kind of cut down on their bills? And then, bizarrely, (laughs) you have this gastronomical orbit that seems to be untouched to some extent by the cost of living crisis and that is Britain's finest restaurants which are you know one two three Michelin star places and you know they're not without their problems but certainly they are not suffering it's safe to say. When we say fine dining what kind of dishes are we talking about here for those of us like myself who perhaps don't fine dine all that often? 
what I found really striking is it's not necessarily just the ingredients or, or the dish overall, it's the time and the effort that's going into them. So, you know, it's, it's all the stuff that you'd expect to see on these menus, you know, langoustines, expensive fish, you know, really super high quality meat. One chef I spoke to, he said that his pork sauce takes 72 hours to cook. One of the accompaniments to the main dish is this little tart where the quince has to be ribboned to two millimetres thick and you know I was kind of what about if it's, if it's three millimetres and he's like well that would just never happen and you know it's only a task that he and his head chef really tend to do because the level of perfection is so high so yeah it, it's food that when you get home from work and you are tired and you're thinking about batch cooking you are definitely not cooking <laughs> so millimeter thin quince serena how much would something like that at one of the restaurants that you've been speaking to set me back well how much do you want to pay really <laughs> i mean the Ritz restaurant on New Year's Eve charged diners £1,900 oh for dinner. And obviously there's a lot of entertainment in the background, but that's pretty eye-watering to, to say the least. I guess from looking at their menus, £200 is a starting point for a lot of these tasting menus without wine. And you can pay many hundreds more if you want to. Why do you think that customers are are still prepared to pay such prices in this climate? I think many of us can't imagine spending, you know, nearly £2,000 on a meal. So I think obviously for some people, you know, it might be a treat that they've saved up for something they've always wanted to do. But I think there is also a customer base where the level of disposable income allows them to do this. So I spoke to Victor Garvey, who is the chef patron at Solar. And that's a restaurant kind of serving Californian food and it's got one Michelin star. And he said that an average diner spends £337 with wine. And he made the point of if you're spending that for dinner one night and your energy bills have gone up, you're still going to spend that because, you know, that level of disposable income is still going to be pretty high. I think a lot of it is about, you know, obviously the reputation of the restaurant. People want to say that they have dined at wherever. Interestingly, a few food critics who frequent these places quite a lot, they said that, to be honest, the higher the price, the more stars. It just makes them more appealing to some people and they will travel to some country to dine at that particular restaurant. I guess if the waiting list is months long it just ups the ante you know you think that there's something that's probably worth waiting for. Serena what does it tell us about the cost of living crisis that restaurants like this are still doing a roaring trade while we've got people turning to food banks for the first time? I mean it just shows the divide that already exists really right in terms of how people live and unfortunately if you were already struggling before energy bills went up astronomically and before food price inflation went up those things are just going to make your situation even worse the one thing that I would say and multiple people told me about this is that although these restaurants are doing well in terms of the amount of covers that they're doing and you know their booking sheet being filled up months ahead the profit margin I'm told is a lot less than you would think they are also to a very different scale and not to kind of compare them to a lot of people's livelihoods. But they are also kind of struggling with supplies, with food prices going up. So 
it's certainly not an easy business to be in, I guess is a fair way to say. So Serena, is it the case that these restaurants are actually experiencing a boom or are they just not experiencing a bust? I don't know that they're kind of, you know, doing particularly well, but they just don't seem to have been touched by the cost of living crisis. And I think there's a couple of things there, you know, one is that the people that dine at these restaurants themselves are probably not touched by the cost of living crisis in, in the same way that a lot of a lot of other people are. But then I think, and this is a term that I heard from a food critic, there's a sense of almost revenge dining, which means that during the pandemic, people who like to lavishly dine, they couldn't, like a lot of us couldn't. So they might be kind of uh, making up for lost time. There are some issues, as we've already touched on, that these restaurants are experiencing as a result of the cost of living crisis, perhaps not in the same way as everybody else. But you mentioned that food prices have gone up, which obviously affects what they're paying. I also wonder about the staff side of things, because we know that shortages in the hospitality sector have been really crippling to bars, restaurants at times. How are these restaurants dealing with those issues? I think staff shortages are a problem. One chef said that, you know, there seems to be a lot less chefs, front of house, hospitality staff around. I think in some ways, maybe the pandemic where they were out of work meant that they've started to think differently about working for 16 hour days in the kitchen. So that is definitely a problem. But It's not an easy business to be in. You have to be consistent and then some. And so what Gareth Ward, who is the head chef of Wales's first two Michelin star restaurant, which is, I'm going to say this wrong, probably Unishir, I think. He said, you don't really go into the restaurant business for the money. You go into it because you love it. And And if you don't love it, it's not the place to be. Let's talk a bit more about your conversation with Mr Ward. Did you get any sense of how sustainable the fine dining industry is? I mean, you mentioned that during the pandemic, things were forced to close up. It wasn't business as usual. But here it is thriving during the cost of living crisis. Like, I think bottom line, there's always going to be a market for fine dining restaurants which have one two three michelin stars i think there's always going to be people who can pay for them and people who want the experience of dining at these places and if anything the more their reputation grows the more the demand will grow well fascinating it's um always interesting to hear how the other half live isn't it serena it is it is thank you so much for joining us thanks For daily coverage of the most important news from across the world, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and take advantage of our price freeze, where until the 23rd of January, you can grab yourself an iSubscription for 2022 prices. We'd love to hear any comments or suggestions, so drop us a line at podcast at inews.co.uk And don't forget to write us a review on your favourite podcast apps. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week.